Welcome to another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. I'm here with three of my good friends again, Jana Spangler, Anthony Miller, Brittany Hartley. How are the three of you guys doing? Great. Doing great, Bill. Awesome. Awesome. Fantastic. Yes. Good, good. Glad to hear it. So let's have a conversation. We've done three episodes already. Here we are on number four. This is an introduction of sorts to Buddhism. Uh, I think the three of you, I picked you three for this specifically uh, because I know you guys understand this territory. And we're using Jack Kornfield's book. Uh, Give me the title of it, Anthony. You'll know it offhand, I'm sure. Buddhism for Beginners. Yes, by Jack Kornfield. And uh, I really just like, he just uh, he just has this approach, voice, the things he shares. He really has just a good, well-rounded view, and I think a very uh, wisdom-centered view of the kind of concepts that he's teaching. And in this episode, so this would be uh, conversation number four that he has, which are the four fundamentals of mindfulness. And uh, let's just take one of these and let's just kind of tackle it. Uh, first one, let's jump into kind of mindfulness of the body. That's where he kind of starts. Uh, any thoughts from you guys on mindfulness of the body? Um, I'll start off. So um, I think this is a really important one. And I think it's one that's really overlooked in Western culture. Um, I've, I've heard people who are versed in more of the Eastern cultures and philosophies and wisdom traditions uh, kind of make light of people in the West saying that we're giant oranges stuck on a toothpick because we're doing so much of our lives from our, our uh, cognitive functions and rational, you know, we, we get this from our, our heritage with the uh, Greek philosophers. And, and I don't think we even recognize today how much of that training has leaked into our culture. So um, this body stuff is actually kind of foreign to us to get really in touch with what information our body is giving us. But um, definitely in the work that I do, I, I, I help people try to tap more into the information that, that is there in our body because I almost feel like that. And then when we get into feelings, it's almost like um, an antenna for what's going on in our subconscious. And I think a lot of what we're doing here with and what b- these Buddhist practices are pointing to is getting more aware of what might be in that subconscious, what, what may have always been in the subconscious, bringing it more toward our consciousness. So um, I think there's some really great uh, things in here talking about this and recognizing that we have more intelligence centers than just our brain, just learning, just our cognitive functions that our body and then also our emotions when we get into that are really powerful um, education centers where we can learn so much about ourselves and the world around us. Love it. Any thoughts? I'll piggyback. Yeah, I'll piggyback off of that. So uh, like Jana said, you know, in Western culture, there's, we kind of a disconnect with a lot of the information that our body's giving us that we're rediscovering with science, with books like the body keeps score and how, um, you know, trauma and things like that can be held in our bodies, not just in our generation, but we can actually pass that on. Um, so not only do we have that in Western culture, but if you come from any kind of brand of Christianity, you have the additional kind of that the body needs to be subdued, that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so any kind of Christian sect um, in comparison to, to other religions really puts the body as almost an enemy and something not to be trusted, right? Something that... Um, 
yeah, just isn't uh, on your team. And when you set yourself up like that, you're going to have really big disconnects between your body and your soul and your mind. And uh, certainly Western culture and certain sects of Christianity can can really um, make that distance even greater. And so um, it's just really important as you're getting into meditation, as you're trying to become more aware of what's going on inside of you, that your connection to your body is how you kind of create a home for yourself. It's that, as Jenna said, that antenna of wow, I'm feeling sensations in my body. What is my body trying to tell me? Oh, my body is uh, feeling like a 16-year-old and it's feeling unsafe right now and I need to talk to my inner child for a second in order to step into the situation or whatever. And as you continue to just kind of develop this relationship with your body that's positive, it's no longer an enemy. It's actually a a source of great wisdom and it's a place to make a home for yourself inside your own body. And that's certainly something that I wasn't trained how to do that I had to learn how to do later. Mm. I, uh, when it comes to sitting in this state of awareness or mindfulness with my physical form, I notice sometimes that when I do that, I become aptly aware of where I'm tense, or I become aptly aware of of parts of my body that are sore or or feeling pain or tired. And it gives me a chance to connect my my mental awareness to those physical aspects so that I can do self-care to those places. So maybe it's a really stressful day at work and I come home and I'm just all tensed up. So I'll sit for four or five minutes and just kind of get in touch with my my physical uh, the physical part of me and sensing kind of what parts are sore, whatnot, like I can start to kind of ease up and relax and let those parts of my body kind of get the rest that they need either the rest of that evening or even going through the rest of the week now and realizing like, Oh, my feet are really sore this week. I noticed that. Um, and try to be off my feet a little more. And, and I think when we get in touch with this aspect of ourselves, we can, maybe get away from the tenseness that we constantly feel every day and and begin to kind of relax a little bit and give those parts of our body that are always tense uh, a chance to be not tense for periods of time as well. Yeah, I had a couple ideas too. Um, uh, so the four foundations, I mean, we're going to go through them, but it's mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of your feelings, mindfulness of your mind, and then uh, mindfulness of the objects of the mind or those, uh, you know, that are around you. And, and one thing that really stood out to me uh, in, in this part uh, of the discussion in terms of mindfulness of the body is I think of, I think of the guided meditations or the kinds of things that, you know, that a therapist or a life coach or someone who's introducing you to uh, Buddhism or secular applications of Buddhism, it seems like they often will tend to start with mindfulness of body because that might be the easiest for us to begin to recognize and understand. And so a guided meditation might start with the person who's leading you through the guided meditation to focus on your breath and how it feels and to take deeper breaths. And then also might talk about relaxing your feet and then incrementally relaxing your calf muscles and then your legs or other parts of your body. And and it seemed to me, you know, when I participated in guided meditations or when I've been introduced to these kinds of things, that that, that practice of mindfulness of body uh, increases our capacity to be present 
increases our capacity to get like bill you've mentioned curious about what's happening you know like my feet hurt like uh and pay attention to that um and and so i i think you know that maybe there's some intention or purpose or functionality behind starting with a discussion of mindfulness of body because that is something that we can begin to do develop the capacity to develop curiosity and awareness and be in the present moment as as we think of you know the war be conscious of our hands and the blood flowing through our hands and and things like that because as we increase our capacity to do those things then maybe that practice and that being in the present moment increases our capacity to be mindful of the other four things um, the, the, the last thing with regard to mindfulness of body, um, other things that were going through in my mind is, uh, the connection to, well, while Brett brought up, you know, the challenges with versions of Christianity where the body is the bad thing, you know, or maybe, a interpretation that the natural man or and woman are an enemy to God, that like the body is something that shouldn't be trusted, that you shouldn't listen to kind of thing. At the same time, um, a lot of the ritual that is uh, practice in religious traditions does have some element of body. You know, it's the the laying on of hands to give someone a blessing or the stories of Jesus where he, you know, takes mud and mixes it in his hands and puts it on someone's eyes as part of a, a healing ritual or story parable kind of thing and and uh at at the same time there's this dichotomy because in a lot of ritual in faith traditions in seeking increased spirituality there is some element of use of body that may very well have the practice of bringing people more to a more mindful state to be more present holding hands you know, things shaking hands, things like that. Anyway, those were the things that came to my mind. I'll say two more two more things that come to mind as you said that, Anthony, which is I notice when I'm mindful of my body and the 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 trauma that it feels or the soreness, I have the ability to kind of separate like like often when we feel pain, that pain is very personal to us. And somehow being mindful allows me to kind of separate the pain. Like I go like, oh, like that hurts. That's interesting. Like, let me sit with that for a moment. And it becomes something kind of separate from who I am, even though it is in my physical form, which I think feels at least like I'm able to deal with it better and not let it interfere with my life, number one. Number two is that when I'm being mindful of how my body feels, I think it makes me, it leads me to making better choices about how to take care of my body. So for instance, eating better. There's times where my wife's like, hey, you know, let's have pizza tonight. And I'll just sit for a moment and go, you know, pizza sounds good in terms of taste, but my body's telling me I'd rather eat something healthier right now. And so I'll say, hey, go get pizza, but I'm just going to grab a bowl of cereal or I'm going to just grab a, a, a cold sandwich or something and uh, and just kind of make better choices that way. And so I think it has real life applications leading to us making better health choices as well. It may lead us to exercising more, doing other kinds of uh, routines that keep us in better shape. Uh, any other thoughts before we move on to the next one? Yeah, I want to piggyback on some stuff you guys are saying. Really good stuff. I mean, one of the things that Jack Cornfield mentioned, um, the way he phrased this was that mindfulness is established in awareness of the body. And so, I'll just maybe say a couple things about, um, you know, 
when you do enter some sort of a meditation or a mindfulness practice, and there are many different traditions that teach different methods of doing that, but one of the bases of that is all, one of the most common things among all of them is paying attention to the breath, which is a very physical thing that your body is doing. It's something that is reliably present and um, that actually there's so much going on with our breath that we don't pay attention to. Um, and there's so, such a connection between our breath and our life and everything else. So, um, and then and, uh, on top of the breath, then it's also how do we position our body when we are uh, entering into a, a more uh, dedicated, my, uh, you know, meditation practice. So there are different ways that we can do that. We can be sitting, we can be standing, we can be walking, we can be lying down. Those are kind of the four basic um, postures that we take. And sometimes we, that doesn't even enter. When we picture meditation, we all just picture sitting on a mat, right? But we don't picture maybe there are other postures to take, like a walking meditation. Um, and there are different qualities of um, connecting to our bodies that we can, uh, that we can explore in those different um, postures. But one of the key things is just to make sure that you are taking a posture that is um, creating the least resistance to what it is you're trying to get through your meditative or mindfulness practice. So typically that has some element of awareness, making sure you're not just falling asleep, you know, that you can be alert, but relaxed, um, where you can start to notice how your body is um, holding all of that information. Uh, as Brittany talked about, about what's going on within us physically that may be hindering us uh, in um, really getting to that deeper awareness of what is in our life. It's amazing how uh, during some of those guided meditations, you'll have them ask you to release parts of your body I've never even thought of, like my tongue. Like my, I'm noticing how often my tongue is up against the roof of my mouth, and that's actually in a state of tension. So these little clues, little itty-bitty clues all the way through um, that if we can learn to relax, if we can learn to pay attention to that, um, it just opens up. I don't, know, I don't know the voodoo magic behind it, but it opens up these channels for some new kind of awareness of our world and our, our inner world and our outer world that is really pretty amazing. But I think it does. It starts with the body. I just took the tongue off the roof of my mouth. I you, <laughs> you said that, and I was like, "Oh yeah, I'm doing that right now." Okay, so I appreciate it. Like it, these are all, it is helpful, and your body is part of you, and and in some ways, I think this kind of mindfulness practice teaches us that it isn't, and and kind of connecting those two stories and and taking better care of ourselves. So appreciate all the thoughts from you guys. The uh, the next one here, mindfulness of feelings. Uh, any thoughts here to get us started? If not, I'll I start. Can go ahead, please. I'll start. Um, this is the place where I feel like this is where you're really tapping into the the true superpower of freedom that is available. Is is really, and I've and I've said this before, but this is really um, where I experience the most freedom, and where um, I see my mindfulness practice um, really just bearing fruit in my life is just that half second of noticing your feelings and getting curious about why you feel that way versus um, creating a story or identifying with the feeling. And um, it's, it's such a subtle shift that has just brought so much change into my life. And then another thing that, that came to mind is that as you do this practice, both with your feelings and your body, at some point in your journey, you're going to come up against um, generational 
something, right? Generational, because because my body and my feelings, I see uh, my parent, both of my parents and my grandparents in the things that I feel and in my body and in um, the way that I do things, sometimes even the way that my mind works. And some of those things are really unhealthy that, you know, have been have been passed down to me. And so one of the most unexpected blessings, especially as um, people are looking for ways to connect with ancestry as, as people leave organized religion, is that a deep connection to your body um, is really a connection to your ancestry also. And so for me, so for on my father's side, both my father and grandfather had nervous breakdowns due to anxiety. And so when I'm working with feelings, which will often be anxiety, when I um, can take that half second to say, oh, I'm noticing anxiety in my body and I can talk myself through it. It's not just healing myself. It's healing my father in me and my grandfather in me and however back that anxiety goes. And it's um, so powerful to send that uh, healing piece backwards to the people who created me, who have imprints on my body, imprints on my genes, right? Those people live inside me in my body. Um, and, and on my mother's side, there's a whole there's a whole host of other things that are going on also. And so as I'm working with my body, I feel deeply connected to the people who um, are genetically a part of my body. And as I work through these feelings, you can um, send forgiveness and you can send peace and you can send love. And you can also feel really proud of yourself for maybe uh, dissolving pain that was passed through them to you that you don't want to pass to through to your children. And that that part of working with feelings and body um in connection to ancestry has just been really healing for me and a, a really great way to um, feel connected to my ancestry in a whole new way than I never would have thought of. Love it. Either of you two. Um, yeah, this one is um, such, there's such rich information in our emotions and our feelings. And one of the things that I notice in my own life and in the, the people I work with also is that there's this great tendency for us to either push away the feelings that we're having, especially if they're unpleasant, or to get lost in them and really have them control us. Um, both of those stances are, are, are at a level of unawareness. They're, they're either just happening and controlling us um, or we're trying to get away from them <laughs> because they're hard. Not, not only do we try to get away from them in ourselves, but we try to get away from them in other people. I notice this with relationships. You know, I don't like it when the people around me are uncomfortable. I immediately, immediately makes me uncomfortable. And now I want to fix it for everybody. And that doesn't always serve the relationship. It doesn't always help us get to truth. We just kind of get lost in our stories. So emotions are fraught. And we we have a lot of, them, of messages that we have unconsciously gotten in our society about emotions, which ones are safe, which ones are not safe, which ones are, um, you know, because we've, we're under a bad influence or, um, you know, there are certain ones that are more acceptable for men to have versus women. We have all kinds of stories about that. And um, we're missing such a, a wealth of information when we take that stance. So becoming aware of what our feelings are and um, starting to notice them 
again, noticing what they are rather than getting lost in them. And then the, the key part is to also not to judge them. You know, I'm angry. Oh, I'm such a bad person. I'm not dealing with this well. Um, separating out how we express our emotions from just having them. So a mindfulness practice through our feelings can be so helpful in helping us navigate our worlds, to help us navigate our lives, our relationships. And if we can view that as information, um, you know, some people have been so socialized not to feel their feelings that when you ask them if what kind of a feeling they're having, they, having, they can't even tell you. They can't even name what the feeling is. So I like what Jack Cornfield did here a little bit and just kind of make it very simple into, you know, this is a pleasant feeling, this is a painful feeling, or this is a neutral feeling. And mm-hmm. so often we're grasping to the pleasant, we're pushing away the the painful, and then we're ignoring the neutral. <laughs> we just don't even know that that's even a thing. <laughs> so um, I think this is such an important part of a mindfulness practice. And there are so many really great guided meditations out there that people can play around with that help if that's a challenge that will help you start to pay attention to those things. And even if you can just name them in one of those three categories and then start to pay attention to how you are responding to that and getting into deeper acceptance of a letting and allowing those emotions to come up and be and be what they are, not have a need for them to stay or to go, but just to notice what they are there informing us of. Not only will it help us cope with the difficult parts of our lives, but it is one of the most powerful tools I have ever seen as a life coach in working with relationship. Yeah. yeah this, amen to that. Yeah. One of the most powerful tools. Any thoughts there, Anthony? Yeah, I have I have a few. I mean, I'd start out by saying, um, as I traversed a faith transition, probably one of the most difficult things to deprogram of the constructs that I held before were that there were good feelings and bad feelings. And when I had bad feelings, it was because of like Satan, you know, like a actual being or his hosts, uh, or it was because it was my fault because I didn't have enough faith or, or, um, uh, or God wasn't blessing me or something. So if I was angry or if I was sad or if I was feeling grief or if I was feeling what I would now call cognitive dissonance, those all would have been sourced from either Satan or a lack of sufficient faith uh, or uh, being disconnected from from God. Um, I, I mean, that's a little bit of an oversimplification, but I, I would say that I had significant deprogramming that I have had to do with regard to feelings and my experiences of feelings in order to be able to traverse and 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 get through it get through the stages of grief with re- relate that related to my faith transition and uh, an, an acute faith and personal identity uh, crisis as well as to move forward with these things that periodically come up being in a mixed faith marriage having friends and family you know that maybe are still in the constructs that I had before with regard to feelings and so forth. It took a tremendous amount of work and 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 this practice of curiosity about feelings, of disattachment from them. So um, I'm, I'm a being that is experiencing these things instead of that I am 
these things. Like that, that was huge. And even to the extent today, it's interesting that I'll have something happen and I'll feel a tremendous amount of discomfort or anger or dissonance with regard to it. And because I've been practicing this, um, my capacity to catch myself quicker with a sense of detachment from that and then curiosity, huh, that's really interesting that I'm feeling that. Like, I'm going to get really curious about what is the origin of that feeling and why Why am I feeling, why am I upset about that? Like, what is that? And and to spend some time with a contemplative, mindful practice to get curious about what the origin of those things are and realize, like Jack says uh, in his presentation, that either those feelings are going to grow or they're going to stay the same or they're going to go away. Like, that's what they're going to do, right? So what am I going to do? I'm going to get curious about those and I'm going to sit with them and figuring out what what does that have to teach me and at least in terms of getting curious about the origin of those things. Um, the second thing that I would say uh, with regard to this uh, foundational mindfulness of feelings is um, I have a very dear friend whose spouse is uh, traversing just within the last month of a very high level risk cancer. And, uh, and my friend's spouse could have died from it, uh, could live a year, could live 20 years. My friend's spouse probably will die of cancer someday, even if this cancer gets sufficiently treated in the, in the near term. And, and my friend has traversed a faith transition and a significant part of um, my friend making it through it was developing these practices of mindfulness and this practice of secular Buddhism. And so what my friend has expressed to me as I've asked my friend how my friend is traversing this, how my friend's spouse is traversing this, how family members and other friends are traversing this, what my friend has shared is this practice of mindfulness has given my friend a tremendous sense of peace and feeling centered in spite of all the ambiguity of potentially losing a spouse um, at a very relatively young age uh, to a very aggressive cancer. And I'm so grateful that my friend is traversing this now instead of five years ago. Um, I'm sure my friend would have used the constructs that my friend had at that time to try to figure out how to attribute meaning to what was happening. But my sense is the level of peace and thoughtfulness um, and love and compassion and forgiveness and surrender to the feelings uh, and curiosity and, and being a resource to those around my friend wouldn't remotely have been the same as what my friend is experiencing at this time. And I, my friend's a rock star, I think. Um, and it's this mindfulness of feelings that's a significant part of it. Love it. Britt, you started off by saying this is the this is the one of the four where you feel yourself making the most progress, getting the most benefit, doing the most work. And I, I couldn't say amen enough to that. This is the spot where I'm most concerned that I won't word it right to the audience. But this has also been the biggest area for me. I was a person on the first half of life that any time the world showed up in front of me the way I didn't like it, I would get this disturbance inside inside of me. And I can only describe it as my chest and belly. 
And that disturbance was interpreted by my brain in the first half of life as something's wrong with the outside world. There's something wrong with what one of my loved ones is doing. My kids are being too loud. Something's going wrong. Someone made a bad choice. Someone did the wrong thing. Um, guy in front of me is driving too slow. And, and it could be a thousand things. And what I would do then is I would decide that the world was at fault and I would lash out at the world. I would yell at my kids. I would shame my wife. I would, whatever it was. And the last three or four years, I have taken so damn seriously sitting with my disturbances and recognizing they are internal to me. They're not someone else's problem. It's something going on inside of me and is a reflection of my own history, my own choices, the trauma that others perhaps passed on to me at an earlier age, and the predispositions that I was born with. And, and so now when those disturbances come, I'm really trying to take that moment to sit with them. So just yesterday, uh, my wife stuck something in the freezer that was warm that we needed to be cold in like an hour or so. And then our plans fell through and, and she forgot to take the thing out of the freezer. And I opened it up the next day and this thing had exploded. And normally when that would have happened, if it was one of my kids or my wife, by the way, I do the same shit. I do it too. And when I do it, I try to sink. uh, I try to hide behind something. And I I can't even name what that something is, but I try to hide and not be accountable and not have to suffer the embarrassment, not have to suffer the, the criticism. And so I just, I just sink away into something and try to avoid that kind of accountability. So I'm making my own mistakes. It's not that people in my house are clumsy and I've got it all figured out. I'm probably the clumsiest one in my home, but when other people make the mistake, I would get disturbed inside and I would lash out at them and I would shame them. I would uh, guilt them. I would criticize them. I would diminish and demean them in order to get them to now change my outside world so that my disturbance could go away. When this thing happened yesterday, I was on the phone with my oldest son who has seen every one of my shadows and all of my unhealthiness and has called bullshit on him. Uh, especially as an adult. And I'm on the phone with him. I open up the freezer. I see this thing has exploded. I make an, I make a note of it to my wife. She's standing right there. And I say, Hey, it looks like this happened. Did you put those in the freezer? And she's like, yep, I did. This would have been the moment every time before where I would have done something uh, uncalled for or unhealthy towards her to make her feel bad that she had done this thing. And I just said, Oh baby, it's no big deal. It's all right. We just got to get it cleaned up. And my son on the other line said, dad, that was really healthy of you. Cause he's, he's never seen me operate that way. And I thought for a minute, cause it felt so natural to handle it the way I did. I, I looked, I listened, you know, I, I thought for just a moment and I put my mouth back to the phone and I said, you're right. That was kind of healthy the way I did that. And uh, he, you know, it's, it's fun when you start seeing the successes of mindfulness, breaking up the patterns of the unconscious shit you've always done that you now consciously sense, discern, aware of, and you now decide to show up in the world completely different. And it is the most beautiful thing in the world. And it's this principle alone that had me originally wanting to get the three of you and have these 12 conversations. Because if other humans could start to do this thing, the whole damn world would change. Any other thoughts before we move on to the next one? Amen to that. I, I, had a, I had a quote that while you were telling your story that just came up for me because children are going to, children especially are going to bring out um, this 
this is a different quote, but one another another quote is, um, you know, you don't. The great thing about before you have children is that you can live under the illusion that you're a good person because your kids see your shit. <laughs> and gratefully, Bill, like you've involved your kids in your journey and they've got to see you grow. And that's so amazing. Um, so as you were saying that, it reminded me of this quote. It says, the finest souls are those who gulped pain and avoided making others taste it. Where it's mm. just this moment where I'm feeling uncomfortable and I can pass this on to you and I can just take that pain and yell at you because it, it'll make me feel better. And then I can just pass that pain on to my kids. But if you can just take a breath, hold it, be curious about it, it will pass. Um, that's, that's, that's a gift every time we can do that with our children. And it's something that for me as a mother with young children, I definitely feel that fail at often, but I, I try every day to, to not pass on, you know, my uncomfortable feelings to my children just so that I'll feel better because that's where that's where we can mess kids up, you know. That's the trauma that we give them. When you do this practice in terms of breaking up the patterns and doing something new, when you recognize you were also completely unconscious of it when you were doing it unhealthy before, like these are the moments where you get to stop generations and generations of trauma from being passed on to the next generation. I gave a lot of trauma to my four, my four kids. I've got a grandkid who is a year and a half old and he's amazing and beautiful. And I, I, I'm self-aware that I'm not going to pass the trauma on here. And my kids are actively engaged in this inner work with me that we're having open and honest conversations about them not passing on my generational trauma to their kid as well. And so this kid gets to show up in the world as his beautiful, authentic self without much of the, because you can't, you can't avoid all of it, but without much of the shame and trauma that we each get from the generation before us that is, is generate like a hundred generations deep, some of this stuff, and we don't even comprehend it. And the pattern gets to break up today and not continue. And to me, it's just the most gorgeous thing um, that these conversations, I think, facilitate. Yeah, I think it's it's the power of of relationship in our lives. You know, we we often feel like, um, you know, we get lost in maybe the romantic love of what uh, an intimate partnership or marriage or whatever can be. But really, when the rubber hits the road, we're living life with people in the good, the bad, the ugly, and and so often. Um, it's it's it can be the greatest joy but it can also be the greatest heartache when because part of what is happening is that any relationship whether it's our kids showing us our shit or if it's our partner showing us our shit um they do that well relationship is a is a pathway to growth if we allow it to be and sometimes these uh these natural reactions and patterns we're in are they are so hard to see in ourselves they're really hard to see in ourselves. Even with the mindfulness practice, it seems like evolution, whatever, has set us up in a place where we are largely blind to ourselves. We have big blind spots to ourselves, but we can see it in another person and we certainly get it reflected back to us in ways yeah. that we don't, we're not always prepared for. Our, our partners are going to show us our shadow faster than any other way, I think. So one of the things that struck me about your story, Bill, was that um, you noticed and I love that you made the, that um, connection that 
the way that you're reacting in judgment to someone else when something goes wrong is largely the way that you're you're also noticing it within yourself. It's the way you judge it when you do you do something wrong, right? So that's a great way to enter this kind of work is actually to notice how you are in your relationships and what things you are becoming judgmental of in other people because we have easier access to that than we do to ourselves. But if we can notice the lens that we use with others and then start to open up the imagination of that's probably the lens we're also using with ourselves. And then our mindfulness practice can really help us unpick those particular patterns and where they're showing up. Yeah, and this ties back to prior discussions about the difference between reaction and response and the and the freedom that comes from mindfully responding to things rather than not mindfully mindfully just reacting to things, there's no freedom in that. So I, I, I like that part too. Yeah, you really do become free from some of these, whether it's the outside world, whether it's the disturbance inside you, whether it's the thoughts coming into your head, which we'll get into next. And you now have this small space of time in between the feeling or thought and your reaction, just enough to give you this spot to start to respond. And so I think this is all gorgeous stuff. Any other thoughts here before we move to the the next one on, uh, on mindfulness of mind? Okay. So this next one, uh, mindfulness of mind, I, I it's much bigger than thoughts. And I want you guys maybe speak on that, but I want to spend a moment on thoughts, which is, you know, these thoughts come into our head and maybe the thought is, oh, I can entertain the group right now by gossiping, or I could, um, I have a thought to do something dishonest or deceptive because thoughts are thoughts and we don't have control over them, at least not to some degree. And we have thoughts continually telling us to do things, both healthy and unhealthy. And when you become mindful of your thoughts, again, it gives you that pause moment and you get to show up in the world differently. So there are times where I'm sitting with a group of friends and it occurs to me inside my brain to tell someone else's story that, you know, I I think I'm going to talk about my friend Jenny and entertain the group here. And then I pause for a moment with that thought and go, no, that doesn't feel healthy at all. I choose to do something different. And so just like we talked about with the body and just like we talked about with our feelings, one of the big benefits for me in this third space of mindfulness of mind is that I have these pauses continually around the thoughts that come into my head about what to be upset about, about what to what to do in terms of reacting at the world. And I get to then essentially get myself off onto another path where I can respond much more healthy, much more responsible in the world and show up in the world way, in ways that um, I've always wanted to show up in the world. And, and that to me is really cool. I know like Jordan Peterson was once asked, do you believe in God? And he said, it's the wrong question. He said, what matters is how I behave, how I act. And the idea is that we have lots of thoughts and some of those are very competing thoughts in our head, but it's how we show up in the world that actually determines the kind of person we are. So if you are a person who, let's go to the extreme, you have thoughts of being a serial killer. I've never thought that thought. I've never thought the thought of hurting somebody that way. And some people can't do anything but think those thoughts. And yet, if they had enough mindfulness so as to not res- not react to those thoughts that they're predisposed to thinking, they could show up in the world in a way that at the end of their life, they sure as hell wouldn't be a serial killer. And, and so we all have, through mindfulness, 
the ability to not be our thoughts. And that to me is also another huge benefit um, of this practice. Anything from you guys? I'll go. I, I think this is the space where um, Buddhism and secular Buddhism, it, it just really shines and it aged well which is not something that all religions do when religion comes in contact with science. But one of the reasons that people like Sam Harris, who's a neuroscientist and, and um, other people who are really interested in, in the brain um, are also really interested in secular Buddhism and why it's actually one of the sects that's growing in the West is, is because this part of secular Buddhism just really aged well in the sense that it really tells us something about the brain. And I don't know if you guys felt the same way, but the first time I was learning about the brain in my mid thirties, I just thought, I just kept having this thought of, I can't believe I've gone this far in my life and not even understood like how the brain works, like what the brain is doing and like what is normal for a brain. And, um, it just went so long without even understanding what brains what brains do. And that's such a shame because there was so much shame around things that I was thinking and like, why am I thinking about this? Or why am I fantasizing about this? Or why am I imagining this? And there's just no need to have any shame around that. But I did for so many years. And so uh, it's just so helpful that, that when there's such a difference in your life when your thoughts are just a ticker tape and you're just kind of holding the ticker tape and just kind of watching it go and like, Oh, I'm thinking about that. And Oh, I'm fantasizing about that and whatever. Then actually being the ticker tape, which is just a roller coaster of thought that you can't control. And there's just such a difference of freedom between those two things. And um, this is the space that just has really aged well with our understanding of, of the brain and neuroscience because Buddhism caught on really early um, that they call it monkey mind. It's just all over the place and that you're just going to be in more suffering the more you attach to the thoughts that your monkey mind is just all over the place doing. Um, And so it's so interesting how early on um, they were leading on the way in neuroscience really. And why it's why this part of Buddhism has just really aged well for um for religion uh in comparison to to other religions and how they talked about you know the mind-body connection so it's very interesting stuff Mm -hmm. good anybody else yeah um so the mind is such an interesting thing like i said in our you know talking about just the west we really put a lot of emphasis on our rationality and on our mind and i think sometimes we don't even recognize actually the potential for self-deception that can make actually complete sense to us based on um, on the way we perceive and take in the world. It's, and I also find it to be one of the hardest things for us to really relate to another person is to understand how another person's rational mind can, can get to a completely different conclusion or think a totally different way than we do based on their experience. Because we are not computers. We are that those those mental processes are so influenced um, by our emotions and by our conditioning and by our neural pathways that are built up um, that um, it, it it's and we can we we sometimes we can tend to uh, put a lot more emphasis on that than we actually should. So many of us are conditioned to believe our brains and not our feelings. And actually, I think when you get deeper into mindfulness, you recognize that the feelings are often more reliable than 
the meaning we're making of them. So our brains, we really want to make meaning. This is, this is part of our humanity. Our brains really want to make meaning of everything. But one of the ways I, I'm talking about we can self-deceive or make, make assumptions about what is going on in the world around us and then make all kinds of stories. And, you know, imagine um, two people in your life, one whom you have a really established, good relationship with. You trust them. They trust you. You feel like they've got your back. Um, they've just been a really beneficial person in your life versus someone who has maybe betrayed you or who has, who, or you suspect doesn't have your best interest in mind or whatever. And you see them do, you know, have a look on their face or do a particular action. I guarantee you the, the meaning you make of what is going on with them is going to be completely different depending on who it is. So, but our brain wants to then justify, well, you made that face. It means you meet, you think this about me. It's amazing how quickly we get lost in our stories and how much that impacts the way that we move through the world and our reactions. Um, mm. So yeah. it's really, really important for us. This piece of this mindfulness is also just pays huge dividends. And I agree with Brittany that it's, it really has been a place that has held up well as we learn more about the way that the brain works and our neuroplasticity and everything else. Um, but it's, it's, I think it's important to uh, notice not only these things in a vacuum, but how is the mind working with the feelings and how is that working with my body and how is that all telling a story? And then how can I get even more uh, awareness into the stories that I am telling myself? Because the stories we tell ourselves is going to affect how we feel. Mm. Love it. I love, I love the whole idea behind stories because we do, we, we have all these narratives about who we are and who the people are around us and what our life looks like. And so we go into every interaction carrying that story with us and now treating the current moment as if it's the thousand moments before that were similar, but what we don't recognize is they're completely different. Thomas McConkie uh, once taught me the idea that when he goes into an interaction aware, being mindful, and that interaction or experience seems similar to a thousand others he's had before, he tries to picture like this bowl inside him that's full, and he just dumps the bowl out and empties it, and now comes into the experience completely fresh and new, like this is a brand new experience. It doesn't matter that it's the same three people, doesn't matter that we were talking about the same t subject before, doesn't matter that, you know, whatever, like everybody has shifted and changed and here we are at this new moment and we don't have to bring our story into it per se. And we can allow this to just be its own standalone experience. So I love that. Um, any other thoughts before we move on? Yeah. So um, I thought it was interesting that Jack talked about some people think of the mind as something that's inside of you. And he talked about the mind as something that encapsulates more than just what's inside of you. It actually encapsulates the outside of you. I'm like, I had never heard that before, but that was a little bit uh, mind-stretching, and it was fun to, to, to consider that, like that people have an aura around them or something like that. Um, um, the other thing that I kind of tied this to, you know, you have mindfulness of body, mindfulness of feelings, and now we have mindfulness of that continuously streaming voice in your head that Eckhart Tolle refer refers to. I think he refers to number three and number four as being our ego. So our ego includes that continuously streaming voice in our head that uh, we confuse to be our being, our identity, but it's really not. Our being is 
is the entity that recognizes the continuously streaming voice in our head. It's the entity that recognizes that we're experiencing feelings and so forth. And Eckhart Tolle talks about the degree of dysfunction that we experience in our lives when we're controlled by our ego, when we're controlled by that ticker tape continuously streaming voice in our head. And, And not only what that mind or voice is telling you, but what the next foundation is, is the objects of that mind as well. And that as human beings, are, are, we're limited in our ability to grow and operate with less dysfunction in our, our lives when, when we are controlled by our ego individually. And he talks about collective ego as well. And so I really appreciated this third foundation and then tied it into the things that I found helpful from Eckhart Tolle's A New Earth in terms of ego, recognizing ego, and then the practices to not be controlled by ego. Beautiful. Okay, the uh, the last one is, uh, and I'm, I'll let you guys kind of dive into this first. This is maybe, I think, the most confusing of the four for the audience um, I've heard it referred to as the mindfulness of dhammas. I've, I've heard it referred to as the mindfulness of phenomena. Um, maybe one of you guys give us a start and kind of help us understand this. And I'll, I'll, I'll let you three be the experts here because this is not this is not one that I feel super comfortable with. But by all means, one of you guys jump in. I'll go first on kind of my perspective on this concept, and then I I expect the others to help me flesh to flesh the rest of it out. Um, but Jack used the phrase laws and what he means, I think, is not the laws in the sense of there's an Abrahamic God and these are the commandments, but laws in the sense that when you start doing your practice, uh, you're going to start to notice connections, consequences, right? You're just making connections. So for example, um, if I sit in my shower and I notice, I actually take a second to notice, oh, I'm kind of anxiety spiraling about things that can happen later, right? And that's great that I notice that. But another thing that that can happen next is as I start to make connections, I'm going to notice, wow, if I spend the next half an hour in the shower, bringing anxiety into my body about things that haven't even happened, at the end of the day, I'm really going to regret that I did that. I'm really going to regret that that's how I spent my time. I'm going to regret having that anxiety in my body. I'm going to come out of the shower and I'm not going to feel super refreshed for my day. Um, and so I'm starting to now, you know, it, it for me, it happened after I started noticing things. Is not only do you notice things, but now you're making connections to, oh, if I continue to do this, I'm just going to kind of suffer more than I need to. And maybe I'm going to choose something else. And, um, and so I, I catch myself, this is also where for me, you start rewriting your story. So you not only just notice that you have a story, but you can actually start uh, rewriting your story. So if I'm in a fight with my husband, a really common kind of brain spiral for me is my brain will start thinking, I'm not in control of this. My brain will start thinking, um, this is terrible and we're going to end up divorced. And my God, what's going to happen to my children, right? My anxiety will just take that leap. And so with mindfulness, I can not only notice that I have a story about the fight that we're in, but this last concept, which is making connections, I can say, oh, not only do I have a story about this, but that's not even, that's not the story that I want to tell about our relationship. I'm going to choose to have the thought 
that even people with really good relationships sometimes fight and, and uh, we can talk this out and we can work through this, right? That's the, that's the thought that I want to think about the situation. Um, and this is also how Dan Harris, uh, the ABC correspondent who had a panic attack on live television and he got in super into meditation and now he runs the 10% happier app and does a lot of, he has his own meditation podcast now, but this is what he described what meditation did for him. He not only started noticing that, oh, he had this thought that if I have, if I make a mistake, I'm going to end up hopeless. Like his anxiety went there. Um, but then he also started to make connections to, oh, all good news correspondents probably make some mistakes sometimes and it's going to be okay. And so for me, this last concept was about not only noticing what you're doing, but also noticing um, what that's going to bring to you in your life and allowing you to then change first um, to what you want the consequence to be. So I want the consequence of being in a fight to be noticing myself. I want to, um, I want to have a story that, um, yeah, that all relationships have ups and downs and that doesn't mean necessarily anything. Um, so yeah, this, this for me was not about laws because there's a God who's writing commandments. It's just about watching what you're doing and the consequences that it's bringing so that you can start making free choices to have the kind of consequences in your life that you want to have, which is good relationships, getting at the end of the day and saying, I, I didn't have a lot of regrets about today. I really lived from who I am. That's what you want at the end of the day. And when you start building those positive consequences of what you want, um, you start living the life that you always dreamed that you could have. Yeah, I love that. I, I love the word that you brought up there with the connections, right? And then your framing of laws. Um, the way that Jack Cornfield mentioned this was to notice what is so in the way the world works. And, and one of the common threads that I, I felt through um, this particular talk of his is that that's really the crux of mindfulness is to be more aware of what is and not have to feel to to be able to notice the ways that our our brains are trying to make the world what we want it to be always, um, which can lead to some of that self deception or 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 being unaware of of what's driving us. Um, so bringing bringing it back and noticing what is so in the way the world works, and then getting into deep acceptance of that allows us to start to notice, you know, where our karma is showing up in the world, um, you know, because what we do does have consequences. What we do does make a difference in the world. Um, and, and it gets really hard. This is really hard to deal with. We, we had an issue in my family the other day where one person had a reaction. Something was frustrating. They, they really wanted their night to go a certain way and something put a wrench into it and they're really upset. And then that makes the other person upset, you know, because that person needed help. And now everyone's upset, you know. And, and I just noticed in talking with my family members about this, you know, the, the one who got upset initially is like, isn't that okay? Isn't that okay that I got upset that, I, that, that it didn't go the way I wanted it to? And yes, of course. I mean, our, 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 we come by our feelings and reactions um, honestly. But then I said, you know, but the way you acted toward this other person also had an effect. It did have an effect. And you have to accept that as well. So it's noticing that. 
noticing my bad mood does have an effect on the people around me. And when I notice that, I don't have to beat myself up. This is not about laying blame. So often our brains want to play that game and lay blame. I often say that uh, marriage can be one giant exercise in scapegoating. <laughs> um, but it's, it gives me a chance then to just sink into that, accept my own reaction, accept the other person's reaction, but to notice how we're all feeding off of everything. None of us are going to be perfectly mindful all the time, but mindfulness can bring us back to inform us of what that is. And that's what forms laws in religion and, and the Dharma and everything else. That's what's informing it is that people have lived, they've stubbed their toe a million times, and now they're trying to give you a rule that'll keep you from having to have that conversation. But so often the world changes, people change, and those laws don't age well always. And so mindfulness can actually keep us honest there as well to look at our laws, look at the ideas we've had, look at the, the things that we think we have to be to be okay and always be questioning them if we can bring a beginner's mind to that. Come back, how is, how is that um, assumption or that rule that I think or the way that I think things have to be, um, you know, can I have the humility to change my mind about that and to get again, bring, come back again and again and again to what is so in the way the world works. Hmm. Yeah. I like that. I mean, like a couple, a couple of thoughts that I have, uh, Jack doesn't use the word catastrophizing, but that's a word that gets used more. Jonathan Haidt talks about the tendency of some of younger generations potentially to catastrophize a lot more, assuming the worst that's going to happen and things like that. But Jack does in, in this session share a quote um, that relates to that, that it, basically the quote says something like anything more than the truth is too much um, in that we, we need to be mindful of what is and sit with it and not catastrophize, you know, or not, uh, using other Buddhist uh, language to not grasp to things that we need to feed our ego to to not focus on the object of that of our cont continuously streaming voice in our head that we need to f to feed our ego or that we need to protect us or whatever it is, but that we can just be at peace with what is and and be cognizant cognitively aware and curious and mindful of what is and accept truth for what is truth, depending, you know, truth meaning that how I perceive it is accurate uh, in, in this circumstance. Um, and, and to be curious and mindful of others and when they're around us and where the origin and to hold grace for them in the origin of their experience as well. Um, so that that's how I interpreted this. It, I it got pulled back into the Eckhart Tolle language uh, and uh, mindfulness of the objects of our mind, basically. I, I know he doesn't he doesn't seem to frame it this way. And, and when I tried to go off and read a little more on each of these four fundamentals, none of the sites seem to frame it this way too. But I'm going to at least poke in and suggest something, which is. I'd like to think that this fourth one can also just include how the world is showing up in front of you. In other words, when I sit with um, when I sit with these other three, we all made mention of like being aware and going like, "Oh, isn't that interesting? How I feel? Oh, isn't that interesting? That thought that came into my head." I think we can also 
be curious about how the world is showing up. And so last night I'm at a get together and there are people there that I love and care about, have deep friendships with. And it, I'm just sitting back and watching them and going, oh, isn't it interesting how that person showed up or how that person interacted over here? It seems this person's seeking out some form of connection because they sat down next to me and put an arm around my shoulder. And like noticing the world in front of you, I think also gives you a chance that when people show up in ways or when the environment shows up in ways that you didn't expect and it catches you off guard, this this practice of mindfulness also gives you that pause with everything outside of yourself. So if a friend uh, is in your space and seems perturbed about something, instead of getting defensive, maybe you go, oh, isn't that interesting? They must have had something happen that's kind of set them off. Maybe I can be of help in helping their world get back to a place of peace. And, and so I think you can be more intentional in how you interact with your environment if you notice and get curious about how the world is unfolding in front of you. Whereas these other three, first three things seem to primarily be at least inside you in some way that other people can't really perceive it, only you can. Anyway, that was my, my kind of little thought with that. I like it. I like it because, I mean, if you're talking about connections, you're connecting to something, right? And so I think you're right on track that you're connecting what's going on internally to what's going on around you and how the world works and consequences and karma and other people. And you gotta, that's where like those two worlds combine and you have to start making some choices based on what is, and you know, the world doesn't work in a way where you can control people's feelings. Well, that means that I'm going to choose this way because the world isn't like that. And so I think you're really onto something with that. Cool. Anything else before we wrap up? I love it. I love the conversation. I appreciate each of you guys. Um, as we kind of close out this episode, I'll give you guys each a chance for any final thoughts. Um, maybe maybe I'll end it this way. How has being aware of these four fundamentals, which I don't think any of us maybe were going every day going like, okay, there's this fundamental and there's that one. It, it just naturally is part of this practice that you're paying attention to all of these kinds of things, at least sometimes. How has this impacted your lives? How how are you benefiting from mindfulness in these four areas? Jana, you want to go first? Sure. Um, so I never want to give the impression that, um, you know, that my life is totally different. I used to think this way and now I do some of these practices and now I totally view the world in a whole different way. Um, you know, I, I think where where it, I had noticed it in my life, those in moments, right? It's in moments like maybe, again, the one that you had, Bill, with the, the thing that blew up in the freezer, right? It's like, it's those small moments where I start to notice like, hey, I, that did shift something in me. And actually doing some of these practices, um, you know, taking a little bit of time when I'm in an uncomfortable situation with someone that I love, you know, or I'm starting to find myself getting upset with them. Um, just one of the things that has helped with my training is just to, to not respond right away, but to take a few seconds to breathe and to put on that beginner's mind and start to sink into what is. Um, so th that's where it hits my, it's my life. It's, it's in moments when, you know, my husband has said something or a kid has said something that just really gets me going or makes me upset. Um, it has given me tools to sit back and recognize 
recognize the stories that are making me even more upset in the moment, you know, the, and to calm that down and then to just be able to get curious about where the other person is and start asking questions. And what I've noticed is that the, the drama and the length of time that those kinds of conversation goes on has, has reduced as I've implemented um, some of my practice. So it's one thing to be practiced on the cushion. It's a whole different thing. And to be able to like, you know, feel some freedom on the mat and like feel some pre- freedom toward our lives. It's a whole different thing to take that into our lives and now interact with our lives, situations and people differently. So um, the times when I'm successful, it I am just noticing an enormous amount of freedom from, uh, you know, stewing on things or making assumptions about people or just lengthening the time. My, the, I, have, I have shortened the, the amount of time that I have to spend in those kinds of conversations where we go back and forth and back and forth and wound one another. I love it. I love it. Anthony, any thoughts from you? I mean, my life isn't perfect by any means, but I live with a lot less dysfunction in my life. And these are part of the reasons why. Mm, beautiful. Short and sweet. Britt. For me, the biggest shift as I look back is I, um, because I have high anxiety um, or experienced high anxiety, I just look at my 20s and I just, I just see someone, I was just always trying to put out fires around me, right? So that I would feel okay. I'm trying to put out the fires of my own emotions by running away or turning on a TV or whatever I'm doing to numb myself. And then I have all my relationships and I'm trying to make them all think that I'm okay so I can be okay. And it's just this kind of autopilot way of, of running your life where you're just, you're just running all the time, you know, from your own emotions and to, to try to make sure that your relationships are giving you the validation that you need. That's just never seems to be enough. And it, it was just so, so tiring. And it wasn't, it also wasn't authentic because it was so based on things dealing with the anxiety in my body um, just all the time so that I was, I was always putting other people first and doing kind of their projects rather than what I wanted to do. And, and um, so now when I look at my life now, and just like you guys say, like, it's not perfect. Like I still lose it with my kids and act in ways that, that I don't want to, but um, the days where I'm just really aware where I feel that shift in my life, there's just so much more life and love and contentment and peace. And I'm not running around trying to change everyone's view of me in order to be okay. I can just genuinely know and, and love myself. And um, it just, it just gives me so much more life. You know, I just wake up and I'm excited for what the day has in store. I'm excited for all the projects that I want to do in my life. I'm okay with the fact that this life has an end and that I'm going to die. And that in fact makes me more excited to experience the things that I want to experience and be the person that I want to be. So I've just, I've experienced more life in the couple years where I've kind of had this practice than in, you know, the 20 years before it, where I'm just on the roller coaster of my own thoughts and emotions and anxieties and, and people's expectations Um, So I just feel more alive. And in this time of just high disconnection, um, dissatisfaction, not knowing yourself, just uh, all of our mental health issues going on uh, in Western society and then the addition of COVID, 
um, to, to feel just alive is just really the best thing that you can feel when you're alive because it might not last for very long and we don't know what happens after. And so it's just such a blessing to feel alive. Oh, love it. Yeah. I, I, same thing you guys are all hitting on. It's not a world of difference. I'm probably, if, if people could get inside my head or view me externally in terms of how I choose to live my life, I think they would perceive that 90% of my life probably looks and I'm thinking in much the same way. To me, it makes about a 10% difference with me um, in terms of who I was 10 years ago and who I am today. There's kind of a 10% change in being aware and showing up in the world better. But man, that feels really significant as you're living it. And and most of that 10% are moments where I would have reacted unhealthy and instead I respond healthy. And, and so I see like my wife being grateful that she has a larger, safer space to show up as her authentic self because I can now handle these disturbances without losing my shit all the time. And um, the disturbances, you guys already pointed this out, they don't last as long. Like I get the disturbance. I realize it's there. I'll attempt to talk it out. But sometimes when you talk about things, the other person, their perception of the world, because all of their experiences are completely different than yours. You just don't have a way to come together and go, oh, like, oh, you meant this. And I said that. And okay, that's then we can just shake hands and understand each other in part ways. Many of our disagreements don't go that way. And this practice allows me just to go like, hey, we just misunderstood each other. We probably can't get there from here. Let's just not spiral out and lose a whole day because of it. Where in the past, we would have lost a whole day. And now it's maybe now it's a half an hour. Maybe now it's 45 minutes. Maybe now it's three minutes instead of being, you know, 24 hours later and you still hate each other. Um, and I think that makes a world of difference as well when this practice comes into rubber meets the road. A hundred percent. It gives us, I think, if I can name this, it has given me greater access in some of those moments to compassion for others and for myself. Yeah. Yeah. We're always looking for resolution and maybe the resolution is just to put the disagreement behind us because we won't get there. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. To, to all three of you, thank you. Um, these conversations mean a lot to me. And I know, again, this is territory you guys are familiar with. I, I My goal in the beginning of this was... I really want to take a segment of people who listen to this program and help them start to sense what could happen if they practice this. And I knew by having you three on and sharing how this work affects you, it would be way better than me just trying to have a solo conversation myself. And so thank you to all three of you for your time. And I'm, I'm excited to keep these going. And appreciate so much the the real life examples that you three have shared today to help people's sense, and then also kind of the the rhetoric around the territory that helps people make the connections needed to start sensing that this is real inner work, real real stuff going on, and it really does make I think a world of difference when you start to do it. Um, thank you to all three of you, and appreciate you guys as much as you, you can imagine. Like I, I look up to all three of you and value you for what you add to this kind of a conversation. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having okay. Have a great day. And uh, we'll pick up for number five. Take it okay, easy. Bye guys. Bye. Bye.